Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish life. We are Irish life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. It's Wednesday, December 21st, and this week we're going to be recapping some of the major stories from Irish business in 2016. Everything from Brexit to Trump, media mergers to fake news, from Apple's tax bill to the sale of some of our biggest shopping centres. I'll be joined in studio by a number of my esteemed colleagues from the Irish Times Business Desk who will walk us through what they consider to be the big stories of the year. And don't forget, you can download Inside Business for free from iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Uh, we're going to start with the economy and markets. Joining me in the studio are Irish Times business editor Cliff Taylor and our markets correspondent Joe Brennan. Uh, you're both very welcome, gentlemen. Uh, Cliff, an extraordinary year in, in many different ways. Uh, it was a year that gave us a minority government here at home. Brexit, the election of Donald Trump as US president, a wishy-washy budget, uh, Apple's 13 billion euro tax bill and several initiatives to tackle the housing crisis. Uh, mm. Where would you like to start? Well, I suppose the real the real shock of the year was Brexit, wasn't it? Uh, mm. I mean, I remember the the night bigger than Donald Trump. Well, I true. suppose that was a fifty fifty. That was a fifty fifty yeah. call, maybe. But uh, I remember the night of Brexit and uh, all the expectations, uh, even up to midnight. I think that Remain was going to win. Um, Nigel Farage seemed. I to think it was about three a.m. in the morning when it, it was. Kind of it was kind of. That. I remember watching Telly half twelve one, and it just started to swing. And there was a few results in the northeast, in particular. Um, that that people was just were starting to, s- to sit up and say, okay, there could be something happening here. And I mean, what an extraordinary uh, few days we had afterwards. Mm. Um, even looking at the traffic on our online site just uh, exploded literally the next morning. Uh, at, at all hours of the morning, people were just waking up and were just consumed with this story because it was such a complete surprise. And I suppose reflecting on it now, the expectation at the time was this was going to lead to a huge upheaval in the markets. And yes, we have seen sterling uh, falling uh, reasonably significantly. And, and a huge upheaval. It's come back a bit, mind you. It has. And a huge upheaval in the British economy. And while there have been some kind of negative indicators there, the British economy has held up pretty well. And the initial impact here, I suppose, has been pretty limited. Mm. But I guess what we're talking about here, we are talking about a long game. We are talking about a story that's going to play out over three, four, five years or more. And, and, and in many ways, we're none the wiser absolutely. as to what Brexit means I was just for Britain, that. Yeah. what shape it's going to take, absolutely. Uh, essentially. The uncertainty, uh, I, I think, is the thing. And huge uncertainty, it seems to me, looking in from the outside, even in the British government itself, which, you know, one day says one thing, one, one day a minister hints that Britain might stay in the single market after all. Another then comes out and says, we're leaving. Uh, and, and it seems a kind of a, an almost denial in Britain of the weak negotiating position they're going to be in and, and mm. the rest of Europe has stayed pretty quiet yeah. but this this could work out this could yet work out pretty nastily and there are really significant implications for Irish businesses mm. depending on what way this falls so you know, Ex- of, Exporters I suppose are, are very vulnerable particularly the agri-food sector Exporters particularly and particularly if you look at uh, well, there's, there's two issues, I suppose, for exporters. One is the obvious one, sterling. Mm. Already already a factor, may become more of a factor, uh, depending on, but of course the euro is weak as well, so that's become, that's a bit of a balance in that story. And and uh, sterling is, is, is well off its lows. But the other factor is, is the nature of Brexit, if you like. If Article 50 is triggered next March, as we expect, and there are two years of talks, what happens at the end of those two years when Britain leaves? 
is there going to be some kind of transitional arrangement or are we straight into kind of a train crash uh, where tariffs are imposed? WTO rules. WTO rules. Real issues there for mm. Irish exporters, beef, dairy, all those kind of companies, real issue for importers, questions about the border, all those kind of things. We, ju- we just don't know. Um, there's as many theories around now as, you know. Yeah, certainly be a hard, I mean, it would be a horror show if there was a hard border with Northern Ireland again, wouldn't it? It would. And a horror show to see tariffs and, and all kinds yeah. of things, uh, and non-tariff barriers, uh, quotas, all kinds, all kinds well, of stuff. Tourism seems to be holding up, even though sterling is weakened. As he figures today, um, say, telling us that numbers coming from GB in the first 11 months of the year up 11%. Now, you know, a lot of that growth, I suppose, is recorded before Brexit, mm. but a lot of it's come since Brexit as well, so yeah. there doesn't seem to be any yeah, major guess, impact there. That's true. I guess when sterling uh, went around 90p or above 90p against the euro, that was the kind of level that might have given someone coming over for the weekend pause for thought. Yeah. It's gone back now to 80, 84, 83, 84p the last while, you know, not, not a million miles away from where it has been. Uh, you know, not not too bad a, a rate, I guess, for, yeah. for 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 people coming from Britain. So let's just keep our fingers crossed and hope that can. Yeah, that okay, can stay. Joe. A bit of a, a wobble, I think, initially when the Brexit vote happened for the markets, but they recovered very quickly and it's been very positive since then. The FTSE's done very well, hasn't it? And we we saw that post uh, Trump as well. I mean, much to everybody's surprise, the markets have actually done very well this year. Yeah, I suppose uh, the FTSE kind of stands out because, <clears throat> given that uh, the, the sterling weakened uh, as a result of of Brexit, uh, a lot of their big companies such as the drug makers, uh, Glaxo, SmithKline and AstraZeneca, Diageo, uh, the maker of Guinness, and the, uh, the oil companies, they would have all benefited from the, 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 the weakness of the, of the sterling and the fact that they could benefit from, uh, from, from being massive exporters. So you saw the FTSE actually taking off uh, a few days after, after uh, Brexit happened. Um, in Ireland, it's probably found it the most difficult in Europe, the Isaac, to recover mm-hmm. uh, from from uh, from uh, Brexit. It's only in the last week or so that it's actually managed to pierce above or breach the the level at which it was trading um, prior to uh, prior to Brexit. And this year, as as things are going, we're still down six percent. The Isaac uh, so far this year, we should leave the Isaac kind of if it continues around this le- these levels, it'd be the first year of decline since two thousand and ten. So certainly different different kind of uh, reactions by different yeah. markets. It wasn't a great year for the banking sector, and that played a big part in AIB's IPO not taking off this year. Maybe we'll see it next year. We'll have to yeah. we'll have to await that. But it didn't happen this year, really, because the sentiment was against the banks. Uh, yeah, I suppose it's broken down to a few different things. Internationally, sentiment towards banks, and particularly in Europe, hasn't been great. You've mm. had the investment banks having their own troubles, and obviously the, the overall banking industry kind of been benchmarked against that. You had the Italian banks and their own massive uh, non-performing loans, and them trying to raise uh, equity in the markets uh, at the moment. So that's kind of played on sentiment in the banks. In terms of Ireland... Irish banks have struggled to kind of rebuild their balance sheets again, um, having shrunk over the last number of years. Uh, so they've they've had that issue. Uh, and with the central bank uh, caps on, on mortgages, that's really kind of restricted the amount of loans they've been able to and, and their ability to, 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 to grow the balance sheets again. Bank of Ireland, the biggest of, of the banks in Ireland, a huge amount of its, 40% of its loan book is in the UK, given mm. the way the euro sterling went. A bit of uncertainty there. We saw a shrinking, an overnight shrinking of the balance sheet yeah. uh, because of the way the euro sterling went. They've also got a big problem with the pension deficit, although that has eased somewhat with yeah. the bond yields In the first nine months of the year, you saw Bank of Ireland's uh, pension deficit double in size to £1.45 billion. Now, the expectation is that it'll probably end up towards the back end of this year at about a billion given that bond yields had fallen so dramatically in the first nine months have begun to pick up again uh, more recently. Post-Trump. Very much post-Trump, yeah. Right, okay. Uh, Cliff, let's talk about the Irish economy. A number of sort of issues uh, washing around. We had the minority <coughs> government uh, came into power earlier this year, kind of an unprecedented situation where Fianna, a Fianna Gael-led minority mm. government has been supported by uh, Fianna Fáil in opposition. Um, we, we've had a number of initiatives on the housing side to try and get both supply coming into the market and also to try and put a cap on rents, which is obviously having an impact. Um, but we've also, the, the impact of Brexit has also resulted in a lowering of forecasts for growth yeah. Uh, going forward. And then, of course, we've got this Apple tax uh, bill hanging over us as well, this dispute with the European Commission mm. over whether Apple actually owes us €13 billion Euro in tax. I'm just wondering how that, uh, put all of that together, how is that affecting uh, international foreign uh, direct investment um, sentiment towards Ireland? Yeah, I mean, se- sentiment is probably still OK. I mean, if you look at the economy in general, there are, it's very hard 
to interpret Irish economic figures, first of all, because there's so many things flowing in and out of them. And of course, sorry, I should have mentioned that extraordinary GDP number we 26%, had. 26%, yeah. 26% uh, growth for last year. It was. Yeah, uh, well, I, I guess one of the phrases of. Um, one of the phrases of 2016 Leprechaun Economics uh, Chris, Paul uh, by, by Paul Krugman Chris by Paul Krugman and you know it's hard to disagree the figures were, were crazy you know no fault of the CSO they were they were just counting the numbers as, the, as they had to under international rules but clearly they had no reflection of how the economy was performing and were hugely distorted but it, it's just really hard to know and really hard to get kind of an up to date view of what's going on in the economy insofar as we can tell the first half of the year was good there was a bit of a blip after Brexit it's still still Things still seem to be okay. Uh, the job numbers, in particular, are good. Uh, the end of year tax numbers were fine. So, so the economy is, is is chugging along at a reasonable rate. People do expect it to to slow next year. Uh, a big question is to what extent it slows. It, there's a big difference between growth of say three, three and a half percent, or or two percent. You know, three and three and a half percent allows the government to still do the things it's planned to do. Where growth to fall to two percent or lower. Uh, in real terms, then, you know, you're getting into territory where the budget numbers start to change, things start to get more difficult. So that, that'll be a thing to watch next year and confidence will be a thing to watch. In terms of FDI, there's no question but that there are big issues now in terms of what mm. the tax situation is going to be here in the in the future. And, and, you know, it is going to have an impact. One of the key things to watch in the early part of next year is what Donald Trump does on US corporation tax. So he's going to come in the it's end of January. Promise to slash it, isn't it? Promise to slash it and promise to introduce all kind of all kinds of rules to, to to basically encourage US companies to to keep investments in the states. Now I don't think that's going to lead to a big pull of investment out of Ireland, but I do think what it will mean is that companies looking to invest overseas in future are going to say, well, you know, maybe we'll maybe more of those projects are going to stay in America than would have been the case previously. Uh, there'll be a lower tax rate there, there'll be more incentives. Uh, there, there's a political environment which will discourage them from investing overseas. So I think it could hit the, it could certainly hit the future flow of investment into Ireland. Yeah, okay. Now Bre- uh, Brexit uh, brings with it some negative connotations for the Irish economy, Joe, but there are some potential positives and one of them is the relocation of some financial services uh, companies to Ireland if the, EU, uh, the UK decides to leave the European single market they won't be able to passport anymore across passport their services across Europe so there might be a relocation of some firms uh, to Dublin and indeed to other EU cities you've been reporting on that during the year yeah I mean <clears throat> you hear a lot of noise um, as to what kind of companies particularly in the in the insurance sector uh, looking mm. at, at at moving activities over to Ireland less so in the, in the banks but I suppose a lot of the the easy kind of transfers will be in the fund business, in the fund administration business. It'll be quite easy to re-domicile funds that are based in the UK, re-domicile mm. them in Ireland. Now, mind you, the European Central Bank has made it clear that they don't really want brass plate operations here. They don't want a situation where some fund or investment manager uh, relocates some activity to Ireland and has 20 secretaries and drivers uh, type thing. I think they want some real trading activity going on here. Yeah, I think this is fund administration as opposed to just moving over funds uh, where they'd be run from Ireland. They're typically run abroad, but they're mm. just domiciled in Ireland or service in Ireland, where you actually have people on the ground servicing these, these industries. Certainly when it comes to, to, to banks, I think that there is... A difference of opinions of whether the, the central bank is particularly interested in seeing uh, a lot of banking activity uh, coming to Ireland. They certainly don't want to see brass plate uh, uh, operations being set mm. up in Ireland. And I suppose when it comes to banks, given there's a much longer lead time in terms of applying for, 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 for permission to set up in Ireland, they'll have to start moving pretty quickly. You'd probably expect if there's anyone really seriously intent on moving uh, post-Brexit uh, to Ireland, they'll have to start making applications in the first quarter, first half of, of next year, we'll have fairly firm intentions being known uh, early next yeah. year. Same what, with insurance. Uh, w- you, what names are you hearing um, that might move here? Uh, in in insurance, you're talking about um, IAG, maybe re-domiciling some stuff here. AIG. AIG, sorry. Uh, re-domiciling some stuff here. Aviva is talking about moving back a, to a structure in Ireland where it has a fully-fledged subsidiary. You have some Lloyds of Lo- London uh, uh, units talking about moving a uh, business to Ireland post-Brexit as well. Banks, you hear all kinds of rumours, very yeah, little. Credit Suisse, Citigroup, all Yeah, Credit Suisse moved over some stuff uh, last year. Mm. They moved over a prime brokerage business to last, uh, last year and there's still some space down there. Now, whether they can expand or not, God only knows. Again, there are yeah. reports about Citigroup as well, moving some activities. Citigroup is, what, well over 2,000 people already in Ireland involved in various activities. So it could be easy enough to move more activities 
over. Yeah. Okay, uh, Cliff, uh, the minority government, uh, a lot of people didn't think it would work, it would last a month, mm-hmm. never mind, um, see out the year, but they did manage to see out the year. They've gotten through a budget, they've gotten over a couple of sticky issues, particularly mm-hmm. around uh, housing and so forth. How do you think they performed? Well, they've survived, I suppose, so on that, uh, on, on that, on that, uh, on that scale, they've, they've done okay. Um, like there is kind of a, a feeling that they're going from week to week and from issue to issue and that maybe there's a lack of a strategic mm. approach there to, to a, lot of, a lot of the big issues. The budget was, was, was pretty minimal. Uh, I guess they didn't have an awful lot of money to spare. Uh, but the negotiating process, I suppose, led towards the lowest common denominator, led towards small changes being made to try and keep various constituencies happy rather than kind of anyone saying, well, look, here's the most important thing we want to do this year. You know, let let's go and do it. Uh, but they got through it, uh, and they got through the uh, a tricky situation, I guess, with the uh, with the rent control measures at the end of the year, uh, where it looked like Fianna Fáil might uh, might object to plans that Simon Coveney was putting forward. And I suppose it's a cap rent at four percent a year over the next three years. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there was talk that Fianna Fáil wanted two percent or and wanted more areas included, and more areas were included. Mm. And they managed, the to, end, they managed to get them to change the help to buy scheme as well, didn't they? I mean, it was yeah. it was originally constructed uh, in a way that would have allowed people buying houses up to six hundred thousand euro yeah. to avail of this uh, tax break. Yeah, um, but Fianna Fáil got them to lower that threshold. Yeah, uh, is it going to work? I don't know. I, the signals that are coming out now, uh, and talk of reviewing the scheme next year, it, it has the look of a scheme that could be fairly short-lived. Yeah. Uh, I think, particularly in the in the situation where the uh, central bank has has eased the rules a bit in terms of how much first-time buyers can, uh, can the size of the mortgage they can take, uh, it kind of looks as if the the help to buy scheme might might li- live for a few months. But I, I wouldn't put my uh, my shirt on it now being there for ter- for two or three years more. Um, it's a tricky issue for the government to solve the whole one of housing supply, and it, it probably will be one of the defining issues, I, I guess, of the administration. Um, and they have done these, you know, there's the help to buy scheme and there's the rent. What I suppose we're waiting to see is, and people in the industry are waiting to see, is what can they do in terms of really substantive measures to, to get supply going? Uh, for example, in the areas of buy to rent, uh, where people in the industry say, look, if you really want to mm. to solve the rent problem, you know, get people to, 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 to build with, with rental in mind. And it's not something we've had a history of in Ireland. No. And Simon Coveney has been talking about it, but we've yet to hear really how the government well, sees that working. They haven't tackled input costs. I mean, surely no. that's the way to deal Absolutely, with yeah. supply. That is the other one, the input costs and the cost of building a house. Uh, the builders are saying, look, there isn't, there isn't profit to be made here. Uh, you know, it's hard sometimes mm. to get Mind under. you, that's hard to believe as well. I was going to say, it's hard to get under the under the skin of that argument completely. Um, but if you want to accelerate supply, you know, you, you, you make it yeah. profitable for people to yeah. build houses. Joe. It's another thing in terms of, of cost of building as well. You know, if you compare now to prior to the crisis, Prior to the crisis, builders could have gotten up to 100% financing at fairly cheap levels for, for to, to build, whereas now you're talking banks will not lend any more than 60-65% against that, and you're talking well, about... Well, that's probably a good thing, isn't it? Well, it's a good thing, but it's adding to the cost. I mean, if you are if you are equity, you'd want something in the region of what, a return of 15-20%, a lot of kind of mezzanine deals have been done. Again, you're talking about mid-teens percent as well for that. So it does mm, add to okay. the cost above and beyond everything else. Well, there were some big deals on the commercial property front, particularly in the uh, in, in shopping centres. Uh, we had Dundrum, Blanchardstown and Liffey Valley all transacting in the year. Uh, fair to say that uh, Dundrum and Blanchardstown, the two biggest commercial property deals in the history of the stage. You can take your pick as to which one is is bigger. You can explain that. Uh, but talk us through those, Joe. Yeah, I just um, took out the old calculator before I came in here and uh, totted up. I think about over three billion of shopping centre, shopping mall sales uh, were completed uh, so far this well, year. I hope they're busy for Christmas. <laughs> so are they. Uh, I suppose, you know, given the way the, the, the sterling had kind of uh, weakened us, uh, there probably was an expectation that a lot of people would go up the north now it's come back a bit so maybe that's, that's helpful to some mm. extent. But yeah, no, it definitely... Um, so what's the attraction? What's the attraction of where are so many international uh, investors shedding out such big money for our shopping Yeah, centers? I suppose if you step back, um, at the very beginning uh, of the recovery, you saw 
FDI holding up. You saw uh, big multinationals remaining in Ireland. So you saw, uh, and to some extent, expanding in Ireland. So you saw um, very cheap uh, office blocks being sold off. So that was kind of the very early stage. Uh, The consumer has only really come back to life since 2014, 2015, uh, where you see consumer prices uh, and and retail sales increase in the last few years. So the the consumer has kind of taken up the heavy burden or the heavy lifting in the the last few years. So that's attracted the types of investors that are coming into to Ireland buying uh, shopping centres and I suppose they hope that that will continue irrespective of what happens with Brexit, irrespective of what happens with the with the, the sterling. So earlier on this year, the, the, the first big deal we saw was um, Blackstone, uh, which itself was a seller of some assets. It's a trader of Irish assets. It came in and taken a stake in, in Aircom, sold it off uh, in recent years as well. It came in in earlier this year and bought Blanchardstown for, for 950 um, more recently, in the last week, we saw the the, the uh, Liffey Valley sale closing, where Heinz, HSBC, and Grosvenor Group um, sell off the the, the that. Um, mm. They weren't that, that long in it as investors themselves. Were well, they? Grosvenor Group were, back, were in it for almost twenty, okay, but 20 Heinz. years. Heinz was only in it for a few years. Oh. Heinz and and HSBC only bought their stake, their seventy three percent odd stake, a few years ago, and to get a good return. Uh, they were buying. I think it was about two. I think it was valuing it at about two forty, two fifty at the time. So yeah, definitely a good return on that. Right. Now we don't know the split between Heinz yeah. and and HSBC. Heinz and are a beneficiary in all fronts because Heinz um, bought the stake. Heinz had the, the the actual ultimate buyer of the of of the uh, shopping centre last week, uh, Bayrischer for Zongan's camera. Um, they had actually hired Heinz earlier this year to uh, find some retail real estate uh, deals for them and. All of a sudden, they Sounds came like up a win-win for them. Now, Dundrum, everybody knows Dundrum is the big sort of uh, town centre in Ireland, and uh, it's changed hands as well. Yeah, arguably that's probably the biggest deal. Even though it's uh, it's reported that the the uh, the uh, Blackstone purchase of Blanchardstown at nine fifty is the biggest deal. Arguably, the uh, we don't have a full breakdown, but we understand that uh, the the Dundrum valuation is is higher than that, uh, above a billion. So. Dundrum came out of Project Jewel, which was a portfolio Nama. of loans uh, that Nama sold. So it was developed by Joe O'Reilly. His loans ended up in Nama. Nama. It's come out of Nama, and now it's being bought by a joint venture. So, so um, yes, yeah, so the loans uh, were bought last year, uh, attached to the ILAC to uh, mm. to the pavilions in mm. Swords and to Dundrum by. Um, Hammerson and also by... Yeah, it's in a joint venture. So, And it's effectively two sites in Dundrum. One is the town centre that we all know and maybe love. And the other uh, was the site which is supposed to be part two of the Dundrum town centre. But you were writing earlier in the year that actually it's, it's probably going to be used more, more for residential. Yeah, it was bought with planning permission. So the planning permission was uh, largely for, for more retail space. But I think the, 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 the belief now by mm. Hammerson is that they would maybe go for more uh, residential, more apartments. Pro- yeah. I mean, the town centre is probably big enough. What do you think, Cliff? Have you been a, a regular shopper in Dundrum Town Centre? No, as an outsider, I'm afraid I'm more a pavilions man. Um, <laughs> okay. But uh, I have uh, had cause to be over that part of the world occasionally and the traffic jams going in are just, uh, yeah. can be just incredible around Christmas in particular. Sure, so sure. more space, more space, I think would certainly, uh, you know, more space and more building there. There's certainly, there's certainly a market, there's no doubt about it. Joe, a couple of uh, big deals for Irish PLCs this year. Uh, Greencore buying Peacock Foods in the US. Uh, they describe it as a transformational deal and uh, Fife's uh, set to be take o- taken over by uh, Sumitomo of Japan and that's going to take another name of that long established name, it must be said, off the Irish stock market. Yeah, um, first with, with Greencore. Uh, Greencore had been in the States since 2008 and had spent uh, a good chunk of money developing uh, sites there all over the place, uh, Rhode Island and, 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 and Seattle and, and other areas. Um, I think they kind of... The market had been somewhat disappointed earlier on this year when they were reporting kind of lumpy quarterly sales uh, in, in the US. Um, and I think that was given that it was very concentrated in terms of their in terms of their customers. You had Starbucks and you had a 7-Eleven, uh, that's a convenience store uh, chain. Um, they were the main customers. So you had lumpy sales from one quarter to the next. Um, they came out there last month, uh, a week after the, the Trump victory, and people were surprised by the timing of nothing else, um, with a deal to acquire Peacock's Foods. Uh, that really expands, first of all, their, their, their customer base. It also quadruples their, their US sales overnight. So it was a transformational deal as far as they're concerned. Um, you saw the share price uh, jump on the day of the announcement, which showed that the market really took it, uh, took it well as well. They're in the middle of, or actually close to completing a 440 million sterling rights issue. That's due to complete this week. So we shall know in the next few days what kind of take up uh, they receive from shareholders for that. 
Okay. When it comes and, to sorry. and fives. Yeah, fives. Um, I think people were surprised by that deal. That was that deal was announced um, earlier this month, where you had the Japanese uh, group Sumitomo uh, Corporation uh, announce a deal to buy out fives at a. Uh, um, 750 um, million uh, euros. I think people were surprised that the McCanns uh, would be seen as sellers, but given the price that was offered, it was a 50% uh, premium to the valuation mm. of the stock the day before. Extraordinary premium. Yeah, but actually, if you, analysts say that you know the, 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 the price you're talking about there is pretty much in line with the sector that uh, the Fives had been trading at a fair out discount um, Versus the sector, but yeah, it's a, it's a fair out premium versus where it was the day before, and also almost a forty percent premium to what its all time high was earlier on this year as well. The McCanns themselves stand to make um, almost uh, eighty eight million um, uh, euros uh, from the sale, and uh, we saw there in documents that were released yesterday that uh, executives, if they remain with the company next year, could, uh, including McCann himself, could make um, up to three million in bonus payments. Wow. Excellent. Um, Cliff, we'll, we'll close out with Donald Trump. Uh, yeah. No review of the year would be complete without the presence of Donald Trump. And it was an extraordinary victory, wasn't it? It was incredible. Um, it was incredible. And uh, interesting as well that uh, in the immediate wake of the victory, all the talk was of fall in the dollar and a fall in the US stock market and great uncertainty. And uh, that all fizzled out after a few days. And uh, we've seen an extraordinary run in the dollar ever since. Um, it's been great for equities. It has. Good uh, for great, bond yields. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the market seemed to believe the, the Trump story to some extent. They Good believe, for Lubeck. That's right, indeed. They believe that he's going to bring growth to the US economy. They believe that uh, he's going to bring back inflation and, nor, you know, some kind of normal economic activity. The Fed, uh, US Central Bank, increased interest rates uh, by a quarter of a point, and they expect three interest rate increases next year of, of a similar scale. And a couple of the governors apparently took into account the Trump effect, uh, Trumpflation, as it's called, uh, in, in, in their assessment. So, you know, you just wonder, uh, I suppose, two things. One is... Uh, when he actually gets into office, or what is he actually going to be able to deliver compared to what he's promised? He's going to have to negotiate a lot of this with Congress, particularly in the tax area. So that's a that is a big question. Uh, you know, there's a Republican Congress, but at the same time, you know, that doesn't mean they're going to nod through everything he wants. Uh, I do think we're going to see a big cut in the U.S. corporation tax, uh, but you know, is that is that going to lead to concerns that uh, the U.S. budget deficit and the U.S. debt are going to uh, explode in the next few years and lead to some kind of uh, confidence issues mm. uh, that'll, that'll be very interesting to, uh, interesting to see It should be good for infrastructure and that'll be good for CRH or building yeah, materials yeah, company Yeah uh, but I sp- and then I suppose the other issue is well, what does he do on trade uh, yeah. there were all these threats about um, does T-tip, tariffs Does TTIP bite the dust? Uh, quite possibly uh, quite possibly does although he hasn't specifically ruled it out um, he's very anti-NAFTA uh, he could theoretically uh, serve notice to withdraw from NAFTA uh, in the next two years. Uh, that Trans-Pacific deal, I think, is that's off. gone. Yeah, yeah. That, that's he certainly that's certainly gone. And even Hillary Clinton was was, was being pushed to uh, to pull out of that one. So the whole trade environment is going to change, and you know that also could have an effect on confidence, uh, particularly if he goes through with some of his more dramatic threats to impose tariffs on the likes of China and Mexico, you know, who, which he feels have been unfair to the US in various ways. And I suppose the, the general point is, you just wonder, the markets are taking this all in their stride, everything is optimistic, everything's upbeat, growth's going to be stronger, infrastructure spending's going to be stronger. This could all go wrong yet, and you know, I think it's when, when Trump actually gets his hands on the reins of power, it's going to be very interesting to watch. Okay, so looking back, uh, Cliff, what was your highlight of the year? I guess Brexit has to be the one that, that really stands out for me. Uh, I don't know whether you call it a highlight, but it's certainly the, it's the one that surprised everybody. It's the one that's going to have huge long-term implications for Ireland, give us stuff to write about, I think, for, for, for many for years to come. to come. Yeah, Joe? Yeah, I mean, apart from the, 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 the Brexit and the Trumps and everything, I think the one thing kind of stood out for me was Arda. Um, this time last year, Arda had pulled... Glass bottle a, maker. A, a, yeah, a glass bottle and, and, and metal cans manufacturer had pulled an IPO of its metals division. And analysts were kind of worrying about the, the, the extent of debt in the, in, the, in the group. And earlier this year, they came out in April and announced a, the biggest deal they've ever com- carried out, a $3.5 billion deal, took on a, a load more debt uh, with that, brought its debt pile up to uh, eight billion. A pretty ballsy move, but it really kind of has expanded their their mm. their overall business. And, and analysts really bought into it. And certainly, it was backed uh, very strongly by bond investors when they went out to them to raise to raise debt. And that kind of prepares the ground for an IPO of that business, hopefully in the, in the first half of next year. 
All right, sounds like good news for Paul Coulson. Uh, Joe Brennan and Cliff Taylor, thank you for joining me. We'll take a short break now. When we return, we'll be looking back at some of the big stories in aviation, media, retail and vulture funds. We might even find room for a a little slot on Dennis O'Brien. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, welcome back to the show. For this segment, I'm joined in studio by Barry O'Halloran, who covers aviation and all things to do with NAMA and Project Eagle, by our business affairs correspondent, Mark Paul, and by Laura Slattery, who covers the media industry and has very kindly brought us some marshmallows to chew on. Um, Mark, we might start with you. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, during the break that we might have a, a slot on Dennis O'Brien. I think we might start there, actually. It's been a busier one way and another for Dennis O'Brien. Talk us through it. Yeah, well, the year began with, I suppose, the fallout from the failure uh, of, of Digicel to float in the New York Stock Exchange. Um, he said at the time, at around about this time last year, he said he would try and float the business again within six to 12 months, which would indicate he would try again in 2016. He hasn't. Uh, market conditions have improved slightly, but probably the sentiment of bondholders towards the company hasn't improved at all. Digicel is still... And the trading lo- environment hasn't improved. Trading environment hasn't improved. It's a fundamentally a good business. I mean, I mean, it's not that it's in trouble from an, in an operational point of view. It's over-indebted. Over-indebted, but also what's really happened in 2016 that has hurt the business is the movement of the US dollar. And that's the biggest issue facing the company now is that the dollar is getting stronger. And as the dollar gets stronger, um, its debts effectively get more expensive. So debts and dollar, revenues and local currency and never the twain shall meet, really. Yeah, exactly. And that and that has put Digicel in, in a difficult um, um, uh, position. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not mm. irretrievable, I'm sure. Um, the company has invested a lot of money and continue to invest a lot of money this year in fibre and new cable TV services and all these newfangled aspects of television. And he's no longer taking a dividend. Uh, he's paused that. No, he has paused dividends. He used to take a 10 million euro quarterly dividend. So that was a guaranteed 40 he's million. He's taken over a billion out in the yeah. last few years, isn't he? In between dividends. 2013 and 2015, he took out 1.1 billion dollars, I okay, think. Okay, so that tap dividends. has been turned off for the moment. So what else has been going on with Dennis Brown this year? Well, uh, he, we're currently, he's currently awaiting the uh, judgment from the High Court in relation to the case he took against the Houses of the Oroctus. Mm, extraordinary oh, case. Unprecedented, really. Yes. So, I mean, he, he effectively sued um, um, the parliament of the state um, for over its failure, as he sees it, its failure to censure politicians in the Dáil for their utterances about his banking affairs. Um, now, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, the defence to that was that uh, Dennis O'Brien has no business and, no, you know, and, and the courts have no jurisdiction telling the Dáil and, 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 and politicians in the Dáil what they can say about anything. Um, and, and Dennis O'Brien's case was that um, their utterances in the Dáil effectively decided a high court injunction case that he was taking against RTE. Um, now, the, 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 the case is finished, but the judgment hasn't been delivered. We're expecting that in a couple of weeks. Okay, and he's also got this other extraordinary case involving Red Flag Consulting. That's true. He um, he he launched a case against Red Flag Consulting, which is chaired by Gavin O'Reilly, his um, his old friend Gavin, and and it's led and was founded by Carl Brophy, who was who was um, Gavin O'Reilly's public relations advisor when they were at Independent News and Media. Um, and uh, uh, what Dennis O'Brien has alleged is that Red Flag was involved in the distribution of an allegedly defamatory um, uh, uh, dossier, for want of a better word, of of, of articles on him. Um, and he has sought and he's, he's tried very, very hard to uncover, as he sees it, um, whoever paid Red Flag uh, allegedly to compile this dossier. Um, and uh, in recent weeks, um, the court refused an order from uh, uh, that was sought by Mr. O'Brien to uncover whoever that client, if there is a client, mm. um, 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 was or is. Um, um, but that case, the wider case is still ongoing. OK, so that's going to run into 70. Now, he's been selling some other assets as well. Talk us through some of those. Well, he sold Canada House this year. That was one of his big asset sales. That's on the corner of St. Stephen's Green and Aresford Terrace. That's right. It's a, it's a, a multi-storey office development. It was one of the first... Um, office redevelopments that started in the sort of post-crash period. Yeah, built by Bernard McNamara's company, wasn't it? Bernard McNamara's company did, did the actual work on it, yeah. In, in, in a sense, he, he brought Bernard McNamara's company back into the building trade. It was one of the first big projects Bernard, Bernard McNamara came back into. But he sold that for 85 million euros. Um, timing was very good. It's thought, um, um, or it has been reported, that he made a profit of about 35 million euros for himself mm. on it. Now, it did cause a little bit of controversy because it's since turned out um, um, that uh, in, in the structure 
for kind of the housing and financial structures for it, he utilised what's known as an ICAV, um, which is a particular type of financial instrument um, that I don't think when they were devised, tax efficient instrument, and I don't think when they were devised that anybody ever thought they would be used for Irish office blocks. Um, so that did cause a little bit of consternation. I know Pierce, Pierce Doherty said some stuff in the doll about it. Um, um, and, uh, okay, what else has he been up to? Um, well, I, I suppose he's uh, he's he's really you know, he's 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 been finishing off the sale of Topaz. Um, that was another one. Around about this time last year, he agreed the sale of Topaz. Now, how much Dennis O'Brien actually made from Topaz is impossible to decipher because we don't know what the debt was in the business. But you hear reports, certainly from people with knowledge of Dennis O'Brien and his activities, would have you believe that he made a profit of about 250 million euros on it. But that's it's impossible to know from the debt. Um, that 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 sale closed. Um, early this year. It, it was very, very, it was close about March or April. It was a very, very surprising sale because um, last year, Dennis O'Brien was saying that Ireland was the place to be. Irish assets, Irish retail assets, the Irish consumer has livened up again. We really need to buy Irish assets. And then suddenly here he was selling mm. a great Irish brand and a great Irish retail business. So people couldn't really fathom why he was doing it. Why now? Why did he choose to sell it now? Especially when he thought Ireland was such a great um, place to be owning assets. Um, so that was very surprising. And as the market leader as well. It closed on somewhat of a note, if you like, uh, when this spat emerged at uh, independent news and media, where he's the largest shareholder, and it would seem that the chief executive and chairman uh, fell out, if you like, over the the possible acquisition of News Talk, a radio station owned by O'Brien's Communicore Group. Yeah, what has what has emerged is that is that News Talk was, I suppose, in effect, um, offered for sale by Communicore to independent news and media. They had a valuation of of a certain level, and um, the chief executive of independent news and media, Robert Pitt, he commissioned a value. Um, that was of a significantly lower level um, and a, 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 a gap emerged between the chairman, Leslie Buckley, of Independent News and Media and, and the chief executive, Robert Pitt, over how much they should offer mm. for news talk as to whether or not a newspaper publisher that really is trying to build itself a, a pathway through the digital world should be out there buying radio, radio assets, assets at all. Um, that's that, that's, that's uh, another kettle of fish. But Independent News and Media, yeah, there's certainly been a lot going on there this year. Yeah. Okay, Laura, that leads me into talking to you about uh, Rupert Murdoch has gotten into Irish radio this year with the acquisition of the Wireless Group. That's right, the wireless group. Or at least the radio assets of it. Yeah, I mean, the wireless group what, were, the, were the radio assets of uh, what was UTV. formerly known as UTV Media up in Belfast. Uh, so Rupert Murdoch now owns uh, the likes of FM 104 and Q102 in Dublin. That's one of uh, six stations in the Republic. Uh, the two of six stations in the Republic, I should say, that they're now uh, come under the News Corps umbrella. Uh, the main interest is probably TalkSport, which is also owned by the wireless group. It's the London-based. That's right. I mean, and that was what, uh, you know, he didn't, you know, go out to. He didn't uh, listen to the strawberry alarm clock one morning and decide mm. I, I, I need to uh, have a bit of a my finger in this pie. Uh, it was Talksport in the in in Britain, which was wireless's uh, key asset. Uh, that he wanted because it obviously dovetails with uh, Sky and they're both into they're both the in, in the Premier League so on, yeah. uh, market Murdoch of course has finished the year by uh, making another bid for uh, Sky which is something that he tried to do a few years ago but was knocked back at the time of the phone hacking uh, scandal uh, by British uh, okay. Parliament Now the rest of UTV which is the TV assets has been sold off um, the, yeah, the Northern I mean, Ireland bit has gone yeah, to ITV I mean, and the Southern Ireland bit to Virgin Media. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain logic to that three. as well. So just to bring this back to Dennis O'Brien, it's quite interesting, you know, one of Dennis O'Brien's big uh, rivals, uh, Digicel, is, is John Malone. And uh, he, as uh, ultimate sort of controller of Liberty Global, spin-off of Liberty Media, uh, is the sort of indirect owner of TV3, which is owned by uh, Virgin Media, uh, the, the, the cable... Uh, broadband and pay TV company. So they not only own TV3, they own um, uh, 3E, which also came with uh, the TV3 purchase last year. And now also UTV Ireland, which is rebranding as B3 in the new year. So it just means that uh, the local shall we say, I mean, it sounds like that's the wrong word to use, perhaps the national broadcaster or he now has this uh, sort of big empire as a rival. And it'll be interesting to see if they do spend more money and if they do, you know, what's, what is the scale of their ambition here with, with this? Because mm. uh, I, I will expect in 2017, we're going to see more consolidation in the global broadcasting business and the global media business in general. And uh, it's going to be an interesting year, I think, yeah. uh, for, for on that front. Okay, it was another challenging year for RTE, fair to say. Um, they have a new, uh, a new head, a new chief in D Forbes, uh, who's come from outside yeah. and 
you know, still issues yeah. around the licence fee and advertising income and costs well, and so forth? Yeah, costs. I mean, there's a few different issues here. They made a, a, a deficit of a few million uh, last year. It emerged. And I think that was to do with higher costs. They had taken on a lot more staff. There was some currency translation issues as well. Um, this year, then, it was a very high cost year. We've spoken about that before on this uh, podcast to do with 1916 uh, centenary general election, all the sort of extra costs. Olympics Plus, you know, there's the big the big B word that we're all familiar with now, Brexit, uh, wasn't uh, too kind to the advertising revenues in the television business across the board. Uh, but RTE was affected by that because a lot of these big brands, uh, you know, the likes of Unilever and uh, Procter and Gamble, uh, they uh, they decide their advertising budgets out of London. So and there was just a lot of uncertainty around it. So. It looks like a deficit of, you know, 16 million or more this year. We won't know for sure until next summer. Uh, next year, again, could be even higher because uh, I think they will have to address the costs issue and that might, uh, in turn, uh, generate a short-term um, restructuring costs if they let people go. I mean, we don't know for sure they will do that, but the signs are that they're they're looking at it. Yeah, OK. Barry, turn to aviation. It's been another busy year. Um, j- just recently, we had CityJet pulling out of its uh, acquisition of Stobart. Uh, we had Norwegian getting clearance from the US authorities to launch transatlantic flights from Cork and Shannon. Uh, Dublin Airport looking at a new runway and uh, probably, what, the first full year of Aer Lingus under the ownership of IAG? Yeah, it is the, the, the first full year because IAG took over Aer Lingus in, officially anyway, in September 2015. Mm. So really they only had it for, for three, you know, two and odd, two, two and odd months. Um, yeah, so it's been a first year and I think that, I suppose... Um, IAG kind of put down a number of markers really in relation to Aer Lingus. It backed it in the launch of three new transatlantic routes this year. And then towards the end of, of this year, Aer Lingus announced the, the long-awaited uh, and much speculated uh, Dublin-Miami route, something that was kind of an open secret in the industry really, but they announced it. Um, Aer Lingus would be getting new craft. Uh, Stephen Kavanagh and... Uh, the, the Aer Lingus chief executive and Willie Walsh, his former colleague from Aer Lingus and now chief executive of Aer Lingus's parent IAG, have been kind of work have mm. clearly been working very very closely together on uh, tackling and highlighting some of the the capacity issues in Dublin Airport as well. So, uh, and along with that, um, Walsh has been very keen to highlight the fact that Aer Lingus, of all the, the the IAG portfolio of airlines, is delivering the, the the best return on investment. Very much the star pupil, if you like. Yeah. Okay. Now, Stobart Air operates the Aer Lingus Regional Service, and it looked for a long time this year as if it was going to be acquired by CityJet, another Irish-based airline, but. Um, after a long uh, uh, engagement, uh, that uh, that marriage never happened. Uh, tell us why it fell apart. Okay, well, first of all, that, that, that talking about a long engagement, it, that those negotiations actually lasted longer than those that led to the the IAG Aer Lingus deal. And you're talking about two vastly smaller airlines. Um, I, I, th- there were a number of things. I think that. One issue, maybe a sort of a, a, a flip-flopping strategy on the part of Stobart, which is the majority owner of um, of Stobart Air. Uh, Stobart owns Southend Airport in London, um, which is London's smallest, effectively kind of in, in Essex, um, not a place to which terribly many Irish people fly. And I think that Stobart have always seen the airline as as a means of developing that particular asset in London. That hasn't happened. Um, Andrew Tinkler, the chief executive of of, Stob- of the Stobart Group, came in and, and took a kind of personal role earlier this year mm. in in Stobart Air, and he was very much pushing the the, the development of of Southend Airport. Then that sort of as the situation went on, it seemed that the talks with CityJet were were becoming more and more serious. And there were reports on and off that a deal was to be done as as soon as next week. Then just a couple of weeks ago, we learned that um, it wasn't going to happen. And a, a big crunch, I think, there was that, that Stubber has quite a, a complex shareholding structure and that needed to be dealt with and streamlined ahead of any deal with, with CityJet and it right. appeared that that wasn't going to be the case. Okay. There's now talk that Stobart are looking at another strategy again for the airlines. Okay. And it's been another good year for Dublin Airport. They're on target for a record uh, number of passengers, I think. They're looking at a new runway and talk of a, a Terminal 3 at some point down the down the track. Yeah. Well, Dublin Airport has, has hit, 20, 20, hit 27 million passengers uh, on Sunday. Uh, kind of two weeks shy of the the, the year end, uh, that brings it 
comfortably above the 25 million that it that it just kind of scraped past last year um it brings it into the the, the top tier of european pa- european airports and passenger numbers obviously the the figures last year triggered if you like a process whereby it was going to start um working on the development of a new runway uh that's a kind of 320 million odd project um the airlines are demurring at the cost but favor the 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 concept favor the concept um but some of them such as Aer Lingus and IAG are, are are pushing for capacity issues to be dealt with in the existing terminal and in, in existing parking spaces for aircraft which is um which has resulted in some some delays alongside that it now appears that the, that a third terminal at Dublin airport could be a reality and if anyone remembers the row over the second terminal well the row over the third terminal could be even more complicated Buckle up. yeah yeah okay um, mark it's been another interesting year on on retail particularly in the grocery sector um you were focusing this year on Aldi and Lidl and how the pair of them uh, german discounters i suppose known for their cheap prices uh, they they're moving slightly up market, uh, trying to take on the others, and indeed Duns have been going up market as well. That's right, yeah, all all and Lidl. And just just to nail it once and for all, apparently <coughs> the correct pronunciation, and we've all been getting it wrong all this time, is Lidl. It rhymes with needle, not not not, not with piddle. I haven't been getting that wrong. I've been getting that completely right. Okay, well I've been getting it wrong ever since I started reporting my business. So Aldi and Lidl. Um, um, have gone sort of uh, middle class this year, I suppose. Ollie um, showed me, earlier on in the year, they showed me around their new store in Terenure, which the heart of middle class Dublin. And uh, it's, 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 it's really... Oh, that's right, you're, you're now uh, a member of, uh, a, a resident of Terenure. It's... Um, it's really a, a, I suppose you could call it a, in, in, in an upscale store, you know, high ceilings and um, sort of a nice sort of sort of character to the it's building. It's the old tramyard building. It's an old tramyard yeah, building and they've taken yeah. every advantage of that wider aisles and mm. you also see it in their in their product lines as well. I mean, you know, quinoa salads and you know, bulgur wheat and coconut oil, that stuff that people smear on their teeth and their hair and on their food and whatever else. Um, um that apparently is good for you, you know, focus on health foods and 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 Lidl has has has, has moved its focus on to um customer service. I was at in it was August I think they invited me along to a um, it was sort of like a, uh, if you can imagine, like a, a an American evangelical church service where there's thousands of people under one roof. Quinoa, sorry, I'm told um, by Laura uh, Nakanoa. Yeah, quinoa. it seems she's been getting that yeah, right as well. Uh, <laughs> good for her. I'm just here at pronunciation. Quinoa, quinoa, quinoa. Um, but but yeah, but Lidl have a new focus on customer mm. service. You know, all they have gone to sort of the, the health foods and the and the. And the Is quinoas. it working though? Is it delivering for them? Well, they, between the pair of them, there they both have you know just under a quarter of of, of the grocery market and over fifteen or, or, or sixteen years from a standing start for two companies to basically gobble up a quarter mm. of the entire. Market would they probably have two hundred and fifty stores or thereabouts between them? They do. They certainly do. Um, 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 Lidl's sales in, on the island of Ireland are well, well north of a billion euros. They confirmed. Um, um, all the you would have to presume are in about the same. So the, the companies have entered into a new phase. Um, as as people, you know, as we've moved out of recession, okay. people are are they're, they're, they're not looking for 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 cheap shopping anymore. They're looking for nice shopping. All right. Now, one of the other big stories you were working on during the year um, relates to special purpose purpose vehicles. Uh, vulture funds and the structures that they use uh, essentially for their investments in Ireland. They were very tax efficient, it turned out, uh, for them. But the government has closed off some of these loopholes now. That's right. Yeah, it, 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 they relate to these companies that, and, you know, before anyone's eyes glaze over, it's, it's, we're really just talking about vulture funds here, but they, they, they relate to these the, the whole wider story relates to vehicles called Section 110s. And what Section 110s were designed to do was to attract um, foreign um, debt securitization business to Ireland. It was a vehicle that was intended for that. That's why the politicians set them up. Um, but it turns out that um, the so-called vulture funds, it's a, it's a loaded and derogatory term, but these foreign investment funds that buy at the bottom of the market, um, that they were using these vehicles to buy Irish property. Mm. Um, you'll remember what happened up in Tyrrellstown mm. um, when Goldman Sachs used one of these funds to buy a load of houses up there and and you know, start evicting people, and he sort of trouble that caused for them. So they're effectively paying no tax on the income um, um, for these Irish property assets. It wasn't what Section One Ten was ever intended to be used for. Nothing I, illegal about it. They were nothing they were illegal just... about it. But there, there, there were other elements to the story. I mean, you know, the, the, the very nature of Section One Tens means they have to be held on trust, and the trusts that 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 some of these Section One Tens were using were actually charities. They were owned by charities. Matheson, for example, which is the biggest corporate tax advisor in the country, um, and it brings a lot of these Section One Tens to Ireland. It was utilising uh, uh, three charities, the entities which were named after mythical Greek 
goddesses and, and, and gods. Mm. Um, um, it was using them to, 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 to offer these services to Section 110 companies that were holding assets on behalf of so-called vulture funds. It wasn't what anybody intended when these structures were done. So what's happened is that in the, in the you know, due to a lot of public pressure and a lot of um, consternation in the Department of Finance and Revenue and the Central Bank and regulators all over the place were, were, were going mad about it, um, they're closing off the loopholes. So now from September the 6th, which was around about the time they announced it, um, um, these vehicles can no longer be used to shelter income for tax purposes if it's in relation to an Irish property. Now, there'll be exceptions and loopholes to this, and I'm sure somebody with... Uh, so what tax are they going to pay from here on? Well, th- well, that's the thing. If they leave them in these SPV or Section 110 structures, they'll actually pay 25% tax, which is double the normal corporation tax rate. Um, but but there are there is debate still ongoing about whether or not there are still loopholes there that okay. can be exploited. But, that, that, but that'll be cleared up in the finance bill. Yeah, OK. Uh, Barry, that leads me neatly on to NAMA yeah. and Project Eagle, that uh, big sale they had in Northern Ireland uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, yet more revelations this year in relation to that, and we've seen various inquiries and programmes about the role of Frank Kushnahan and so on. Walk us through that. Okay, well, NAMA sold these assets, uh, basically it's Northern Ireland loans, in 2014 uh, to to Cerberus for one point, one of the, the aforementioned vulture funds for uh, 1.6 billion euro, roughly. In effect, um, it, it looks like a number of individuals, including a former Northern Ireland advisor to NAMA, Frank Cushnan, and a lawyer, Ian Coulter, attempted to manipulate or orchestrate this sale in return for a fee, roughly kind of, um, I think, 15 million, which was to be split three ways, 15, 16 million sterling, which was to be split three ways. A report by the Controller and Auditor General, Seamus uh, McCarthy, uh, earlier in the autumn, found indicates, if you like, that the the deal, that the way NAMA managed the deal, that it it may have cost the taxpayer, left the taxpayer around 200 million short. And it also raised questions about NAMA's handling of a conflict of interest. That generated a very angry response from NAMA, didn't it? Unprecedented in the way it attacked a fellow state agency. Well, well, yeah. And I mean, this is it. It, it, NAMA has kind of come out fighting on virtually every, every point. First of all, that they're sticking with the, the the argument over the price is a very technical one, but they're saying they got the best price available. Second, they're saying there was nothing wrong with the the sale process, and that they responded uh, more than adequately, did everything that was required when they discovered that their former advisor, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Kushnahan, was working for one of the bidders, Pimco, which subsequently, it's got to be said, left the process. Um, when uh, when that emerged shortly before the sale in in April 2014, so they have they have stuck to the line, uh, they have stuck to their guns right through a, a, a long public accounts inquiry, um, which at which it also emerged that they don't keep uh, backup notes from their their to support the minutes of their board meetings. They got some criticism for that, um, but they have you know they they've also criticised. Uh, the, the Comptroller and Auditor General's office suggesting that it didn't actually have the expertise needed to, to value uh, specific assets such as loan sales and that on that basis its calculations uh, may well have been, its, its calculations were out somewhat. And not only that but I mean they've, they, they've been joined by, um, I think it's Alan Nolan from the, the former Department of Finance and, and, and backed by figures such as this and it, it's, it's been fairly incredible really to watch the way that these kind of public bodies have have turned on the, the the CNAG, which is a kind of an office that I think in the past has been, well, I won't say regarded as sacred, but with, you know around which people certainly treaded very very carefully, given the kind of key public interest role that it has. You know? Yeah, and I suppose it concluded uh, in, in some ways. You can tie it in. Mick Wallace was one of the people who brought these revelations uh, to the fore, um, and we we learned just in the past number of days that he's been uh, he's been effectively declared bankrupt. And the, the group um, that pushed them into bank, bankruptcy effectively was uh, Cerberus, uh, which acquired these loans, uh, these Project Eagle loans uh, from NAMA. So uh, was, it, was it a case of uh, revenge, uh, a dish best, best served cold? Well, um, quite possibly. It's very difficult to know precisely what Cerberus's motivations for this, uh, for this move are, because Mick Wallace's it's well documented that McWallace's debts are in and around 30 million. 
Cerberus isn't going to get two million. The two million is old, nor anything like it. I would say on that basis. In fact, it looks to me like it is going to get nothing. The other thing is that it appears to fly very much in the face of Cerberus's own stated position. The position stated by its chief operating officer, Mark Nepperant, when he appeared at the PAC, where he said that they prefer to. To, to settle with the, the 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 holders of these debts, with the the, the people who owe them the, the the money when they acquire the debts, they prefer to settle with them in a civilized way. That they they prefer to negotiate a, an exit for these people mm. that involves a refinance, and everybody goes home happy. Uh, it doesn't appear that they've done anything like that with McWallace. Okay, all right. It sounds like that's going to be a saga that'll run run. We'll see how it plays out in two thousand and seventeen. I'm just going to go quickly around the table just to get the highlights of the year from our three contributors. Mark, start with you. Well, my highlight of the year, I suppose, is, is sort of a personal highlight, and it was uh, it was when I uh, it was when I took a a week to travel around Ireland to make a a, a project, a multimedia project for uh, which indeed for the we, paper. we we featured on this podcast on on tourism, and 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 the highlight there really was just meeting the people involved in the tourism industry. There's nothing like sometimes getting out of your office and getting in the car and going out and see what's happening in the businesses that you cover and the areas that you cover, and driving around the country, you know, meeting a guy who bought a hotel for the price of a, a 55 bedroom hotel for the price of a three bed semi, and during the crash, and it's now making a fortune from it, meeting the, the farmer down in Kilkenny who now brings Americans and tours around an old village in his garden where he says Santi's buried in his backyard. You know, I mean, uh, to meet a, a guy who runs a, a bed and breakfast in, um, in, 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 in Dungarvan who has had a lot of very tragic things happen in his life, which is to see the way he deals with tourists that come to his business. Mm. Personal highlight, not a, not, not, not a major highlight, but for me that was the highlight, was just getting under the skin of the tourism industry. Okay, sounds good, Laura. Uh, well, my highlight is kind of a, a, a highlight as a consumer rather than a, as, as a journalist. There actually wasn't a whole lot to celebrate, I don't think, in the year uh, in media, which sort of was marked by a kind of consolidation of power at the likes of Google and Facebook eating up more advertising uh, dollars than ever before. Um, but I'm going to pick one of Rupert Murdoch's uh, indirect products that was an FX television series earlier in the year called The People versus O.J. Simpson. Oh, very which, good. Uh, which I saw that. It was an absolutely, I mean, who'd have thought that uh, absolute media circus with a with a with a difficult ending, shall we say, in real life, more than twenty years ago, uh, could be could be the subject of this sort of deeply arch, uh, very, but yet very emotionally powerful series with Sarah Paulson and Sterling K. Brown yeah. and John Travolta, and it was a it was it was a brilliant television. It series. was excellent, although mind you, I think the casting of the actor for who I Cuba Gooding Jr. I think you're going to say as for, as, for, OJ. as OJ. Yes. Yeah. No. Um, I mean that possibly was that was possibly uh, it, it was possibly a good idea that OJ wasn't necessarily the star of the show and it was concentrated on the defence sure. uh, lawyers who of course went through you know we all watched that trial on live on Sky and it was quite a novel thing uh, then and for it to be a sort of uh, a very high quality but with a lot of black humour uh, in it as well This and uh, I just really enjoyed it and it was really well made Yeah no it was pretty good uh, Barry we should uh, stress we should remind listeners that there was a personal highlight for you you won news story of the year for your work on Naman Project Eagle uh, at the UCD Smurfit Business Journalism of the Year Awards and congratulations uh, for that. But uh, work-wise, what was the, the highlight? Okay, well, Laura Slattery is always very, uh, a very hard act to follow in these situations. Uh, I guess, look, it, it's still got to be the, the, the Project Eagle thing and I, I suppose, look, it was very gratifying to get the award and, I, you know, it was, I was very, very surprised to get it um, and on a number of grounds, but hey, I, I'd absolutely take it. In terms of Project Eagle, I think a lot of the investigations so far this year have put an awful lot of flesh on the bones of the coverage that this paper gave the story um, way back in 2015 when not too many people were paying attention to it. So that's that's kind of been pretty gratifying as well, I guess. Yeah, yeah OK. And excellent coverage it was too, Barry. So well done. Um, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Cliff Taylor, Joe Brennan, Laura Slattery, Mark Paul and Barry Halloran for their insights on the major stories of this year. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Uh, don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock and all that's left is for me to wish you and your families a very happy Christmas. We're going to play out now with the choir of the NTMA singing some Christmas carols in aid of the Dublin Simon community. Happy Christmas!
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 